1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Martha S. Jones to discuss her book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. This was published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press and is a fascinating and expansive study of how we think about race and rights, particularly before the Civil War, but also in the period after as well. It's a very clear study, and I'm looking forward to talking to Martha about her work in birthright citizens, which is extremely topical also. So welcome to the podcast, Martha Jones.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
1: I just was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project.
0: I think a confession might be in order, uh, which is to say um, I'm a lapsed lawyer, and so first and foremost... Uh, when I begin to think about a book project, I'm trying to find a way to spend more time in the courthouse, and um, in particular in uh, the archives of trial courts, which is where I spent most of my years as a litigator. And at the same time, I'm somebody who sits in the back of you know conference meeting halls and uh, listens to papers. And closer to my own field, I knew that there had been a lot of and continued to be a lot of ink spent on a very notorious Supreme Court case called Dred Scott versus Sanford. And I wondered uh, to myself, and I muttered to myself sometimes during conference panels, if there wasn't another story to tell about Dred Scott. And so when I came to actually um, do something about that, sort of uh, question, um, I wanted to come back to the local courthouse, the courthouse of the 19th century, um, to ask about this equation of race and rights before the Civil War that Dred Scott so notoriously comments on. Uh, I wanted to come back to that, but look at it from the perspective of the everyday workings of a courthouse.
1: And and so in that context, you, you have this beautiful um, sort of introduction in your book that highlights the not only the courthouse itself but also the ground on which it was built. Um, and so I guess one of my first questions to you is because it so animates the text as well why Baltimore?
0: Many reasons. Um, I'll share a few. Um, it begins with that notorious Supreme Court decision, Dred Scott. Um, and uh, your listeners might recall that the author of the uh, the uh, dominant decision in Dred Scott was Roger Brooke Taney, um, who was the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1857. And Tawney concludes that no black American, be they enslaved or free, can be a citizen of the United States. And I wanted to understand Tawney better. But that is to say, um, I wanted to get beyond um, the scrutiny of Tawney as a high court jurist. I wanted to get beyond Tawney um, as an intellectual. I wanted to really know what Tawney knew. About free African Americans. And that brings me to Baltimore because throughout nearly all of Tawney's years on the High Court in Washington, he continues to live, to work, um, to sit on the federal bench in Baltimore. And I wondered if I couldn't learn more about Tawney's thinking, um, a critical vantage point um, on Tawney's thinking. Um, I thought could be gained by knowing what his everyday life with former slaves was like in the city of Baltimore. So I start with that. And then I discover um, not discover, but I, or I discover what other scholars had long known, which is that Baltimore in the years before the civil war was home to the largest free African-American community in the U S. So here I have this expansive field And when I go into the records of the courthouse, indeed, I can see um, the important degree to which former slaves, free African Americans, are a part of the everyday legal culture of the city. Baltimore is um, not anomalous, but it is a somewhat unique city in the decades before the Civil War because it occupies what Other historians like Barbara Fields have termed a middle ground between North and South. It's a largely free city in a slave-holding state, uh, closer to Philadelphia than it is Richmond. Uh, And so we capture, in a sense, in slow motion in Baltimore, many of the sorts of changes um, in law and legal thinking that are going to characterize the work of Congress and a national rethinking of race and rights after the Civil War, that transformation is already afoot in Baltimore.
1: Um, and And I wanted to then bring you to the sort of overall thesis of the book, which is, as you sort of started to talk about it, some of the changes in law and legal thinking with regard to African Americans and individuals who were black and free. Um, But you also are taking up, as you you note in your sort of explanation of the book, not the broadest legal constitutional arguments with regard to citizenship, but to some degree, the lesser known understandings, um, particularly with regard to how African Americans approached the question of rights and citizenship.
0: Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, you really, you put your finger on um, the the root of my point of view in this book, um, which is to say we knew a lot about how um, high court jurists, treatise writers, attorneys general had thought about the question of citizenship and race and citizenship, but we knew very little about how African Americans themselves thought about this question. And so this book is very much... Um, an effort to explore that question from their vantage point. Um, It is a particular vantage point. It is on some days a constrained vantage point. Um, It is not even the vantage point of the historian, if you will, sitting in 2019 and looking at the question. Um, But it turns out that even from their constrained uh, point of view, um, former slaves are... Um, necessarily, and I hope we'll talk about that, but they're necessarily um, led to think hard about whether or not they are citizens of the United States. And then we're able to look at both the evolution of their ideas, that is, um, how do they come to think about this question? Um, How do they come themselves to interpret the Constitution and the stakes of the Constitution in their lives? Um, And then uh, how do they go about, if you will, um, realizing that or advocating for that or um, pushing on and insisting upon a debate um, with respect to their status. And that is the, really the story I tell. I went in thinking I was asking a yes or no question, which is not actually a very good historian's question, I, I confess. But I thought I was going in to um, arrive at a conclusion were former slaves citizens or were they not? Um, that kind of normative question. But it turns out that the real story um, is about the debate that they generate, is about what it means for this community to live across many decades with a sort of constitutional uh, cloud um, over their heads and over their lives, um, precisely because not only they struggle to fix their status, it turns out that, even the great legal minds of the period um, are um, very much in disagreement about how to think about former slaves before the Constitution.
1: and And I wanted to sort of uh, sort of press on that um, avenue of your research that you are sort of looking at this cloud um, that you know it, that African Americans um, existed in. Uh, And you talk, uh, you sort of also nod at it towards the end of the book with regard to other groups that perhaps are living in the same kind of existence in the United States now with a cloud. Um, But in particular, you talk about how um, former slaves and also individuals who were African-American and free separately or differently, um, how they operated as, I don't want to say citizens, but in that context, how did they move around as individuals and free?
0: Yeah. So um, the context is that whether they look to high courts or to Congress or to treatise writers, um, wherever they look in laws, officialdom, Um, The answers are contradictory. Um, And so what I discover um, is a community of people who are going to, as best they can, um, take advantage of that murky um, understanding of their status. And to, if you will, um, carry themselves like, um, cobble together um, uh, to perform um, like rights bearing people, um, in the absence right, of any um, assuredness about their status. Um, so this is why the local courthouse is so important, because there we find former slaves, I think, doing things and having the capacity and the standing to do things that we don't expect them to be able to do, whether it's um, secure um, the right to travel or to carry guns um, or... Um, to use the writ of habeas corpus um, and compel um, white men um, before a court to answer um, their charges, um, whether it's testifying against white individuals or even serving as trustees. Um, These are all um, small in a sense, of course, every day in their nature, um, but very powerful efforts by former slaves to, um, give evidence, um, if you will, um, of their status um, as rights bearing people. Um, And so these are um, scenes that uh, we have perhaps overlooked as we've um, been inclined to want to look at those um, dramatic moments such as the Dred Scott case. Um, But it turns out for most former slaves, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is a distant and largely irrelevant forum um, that it is their local courthouse where they are really making their uh, argument for um, who they should be before the Constitution.
1: And, and you talk about this also as it's not just um, African-Americans or uh, uh, individuals who were former slaves, but you note early on that citizenship had a piecemeal quality in antebellum America defined only as needed. Who was a citizen? And I find this question overarching because you note that it's, it's very murky <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> in lots and lots of ways for lots and lots of different groups that your research was specifically with regard to race, but that there's this question with regard to women also. Um, And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about why we sort of have this notion now, you know, very clearly, birthright citizenship, natural born citizens and immigrants and green cards, but that particularly before the Civil War and some of the amendments that came thereafter, that citizenship was not nearly as clear as we think it was.
0: Yes. Um, My former colleague at Michigan Law School, Bill Novak, had uh, written a very influential, a very important article that surveyed the uh, antebellum treatise literature on the question of citizenship. And Novak concludes, um, and he's right to an important degree, that for many Americans, citizenship is a non-issue. For um, white men, citizenship is assumed. Um, It's not expressly provided for, delineated in the Constitution. Um, Some white men are going to be subject to um, the Naturalization Act of 1790. But for those born in the U.S., citizenship is an assumption um, it is a, 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 a conclusion um, that is naturalized in the minds of white men and to some degree, white women and children as well. Um, and so partly what I learn is that um, we only come to this question in the. US um, not by way of political theory, uh, you know, not as an academic question at all, but that the nation for the very first time is, Um, compelled to scrutinize the Constitution um, and other sorts of authorities on citizenship precisely because Black Americans put that question on the table. And um, you're right to point out that um, the folks I write about will be compared, if you will, um, to women um, whose citizenship status um, is... Um, in another way, murky, um, to children, um, to immigrants. Um, What's unique about former slaves is that um, they um, uh, are um, facing a a political climate and a legal climate in which they are threatened with uh, removal and deportation from the U.S. And so they are coming to citizenship has a kind of urgency. It gives the debates a kind of urgency that I would say characterizes the way we come to think about citizenship going forward well beyond um, the Civil uh, War and Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment um, that we could still, until today, think about, the understand our thinking about citizenship as having evolved um, not in an academic Um, or learned way at all, but instead around moments of crisis, of disruption, um, around moments in which communities that are said to be um, at an awkward or um, even at a distance from the Constitution, when those communities organize themselves to press on the boundaries of belonging, um, then we get new thinking about citizenship. And that was true Um, before the Civil War for Black Americans, we could say it's true today in 2019 for immigrant Americans and their children.
1: And I wanted to ask you about that constitutional period. One of the chapters you in your book explores particularly the thinking at the time of the Constitution and that particular generation, and then what happened thereafter. If you could speak a little bit to how... Black Americans were considered at the time of the Constitution and the Revolution, and then what happened uh, following that period?
0: Yeah. Um. So two things simultaneously. On the one hand, uh, we have um, by the end of the 18th century uh, the emergence of um, a set of ideas that we come to call colonization. Colonizationists are looking out into the future of the new nation. Uh, they are uh, mindful that in some parts of the country, slavery is coming to an end, and they anticipate, though it may take many decades, that slavery will um, will end as an institution. And the question for colonizationists is then, what is the future of former slaves? What, are, what is the future of free African-Americans? And colonizationists conclude that the future of the nation is um, that of a white man's country. And so their work is um, dedicated to the um, persuasion, coercion, and otherwise um, the removal of former slaves from the U.S. And this, um, if you will, sets up the terms of a constitutional puzzle Um, which is where do former slaves stand in in particular um, before the constitution of 1787. And there's really nothing in that text that um, resolves that question. So that's one part of the story. On the other hand, um, much of the the sorts of rights that we associate with citizenship um, are not arbitrated by the, federal constitution at all, but our state matters, political rights in particular, are being regulated by individual states. And so in the wake of the revolution, in the state I write about, Maryland, um, African-American men vote. Um, They will lose the vote in the early 19th century, but it is to say in Maryland's um, political scheme post the the revolution, um, color is not a barrier to political rights. Um, that is a story that will, um, that will change in the early 19th century in 1802 when Black men will lose the right to vote in Maryland. Um, but it's to say both things are true. Um, on the one hand, colonizationists are organizing to remove former slaves from the country. And on the other hand, former slaves and their descendants are voting um, in individual states. And that is the murkiness um, that uh, really introduces um, than the story of birthright citizens.
1: And, and so from this discussion, though, you also highlight the fact that um, rights like the right to vote um, or property uh, and so forth were then sort of discussed and pursued by um, free Black citizens. Uh, but at the same time that those rights were items that were subsequently taken away um, by states uh, as they were sort of evolving um, in the new nation. Can you talk a little bit about this question of rights? Because this is also a kind of chicken and egg <laughs> in your book,
0: mm-hmm. I think,
1: um, in terms of uh, citizenship and rights and how Black Americans operated with regard to them.
0: Yeah, Um, it's such a good way of um, putting it um, because I do think it is a a, a chicken or the egg um, problem in this book um, because I think, frankly, this is the way that the people I write about um, uh, approached it, um, which is to say they're not political theorists. um, They are not treatise writers. They are less interested um, in sort of systematic or scientific thinking about citizenship. They are um, improvisational. And um, some days they would posit that rights flow from citizenship. And other days they would posit that to the degree that one uh, bears rights, um, one is then um, giving evidence of their citizenship. For the people I write about, these aren't mutually exclusive Um, precisely because they are um, engaged in law, but they are engaged in law very much as politics. Um, So I'm fascinated by this, frankly, because again, I go in thinking, for example, um, there's a very clear line between um, state citizenship and federal citizenship in this period. And I'm looking for people to make arguments about that um, federalism and how those two facets or dimensions of citizenship um, interlock or don't. The people I write about are not interested in that, and they are prepared um, to an important degree um, to take um, citizenship and rights as they come Uh, precisely because as they study the Constitution, as they study treatises, as they study the work of Congress and more, as they consult with lawyers, um, what they learn um, is that no one is really um, clear about this question. Just a a brief example, um, in the state of Maryland, African American men vote until the dawn of the 19th century. And then the state constitution and its voting rights provision will be amended for the first time to insert the word white and to make so called whiteness a qualification for voting. But the other qualification for voting in the state of Maryland, which has absolute autonomy on this question, is that one must be a citizen of the United States. And so what we learn is that. Um, Not only are federal authorities or federal courts interpreting um, who is a citizen of the United States, this is the ordinary business of state authorities also. And so um, it is, you know, one more, I know I I keep coming back to this, but I think it is that cloud or that murkiness um, around the relationship between citizenship and rights that um, very much animates this book. However, if there's one argument that um, crystallizes through these debates, it is this one. People I write about believe that if they are citizens of the United States, they are immune from, protected from. They have um, an absolute um, defense against the prospect of colonization or forced colonization or deportation they come to understand that U.S. citizenship includes um, an unwritten but very powerful right, which what they sometimes term the right to residence. Um, Other scholars will call um, territorial citizenship that they come to um, argue, to promote, to insist that um, they are not only citizens of the United States, that what flows from being a citizen of the United States is this right to remain in the country unmolested um, and um, protected from the um, coercive or um, compulsory schemes that colonizationists um, from time to time promote.
1: And, and this right to residence or, or territorial capacity, this is not something that we usually talk about these days.
0: It is, um, I think it is something we should be talking about, frankly, um, as we um, are uh, living through a moment in which um, our borders are so fraught um, and uh, people um, who, um, who leave are now being, um, if you will, confronted or accosted at the border, um, having their right to re-enter the United States scrutinized. Um, It feels to me um, eerily um, familiar um, to the kinds of circumstances that former slaves um, find themselves in um, before the war. But you're right that we, I think, too often or too quickly um, reduce citizenship and the rights of citizens to political rights. And so part of what this history does is kind of slow us down enough to recall um, that some of the earliest Um, disputes over the rights of citizens have to do with the right of residence or territorial citizenship, we will move um, in this era to questions of what we call civil rights. Um, This is, for example, the right to sue and be sued, the right to protect um, one's person and property in a court of law. And those things for the people I write about are paramount, Um, even more so than the political rights, which will, of course, take center stage um, nationally um, in the wake of the Civil War. The folks I read about are interested in political rights, but they see um, first and foremost territorial rights and civil rights as essential to protecting their persons and property from the threat of colonization and removal. And in a certain
1: sense, the right of residency is also a kind of freedom um, that that we don't often also talk about. But I, I sometimes discuss this with my students in terms of thinking about movement in inside the United States with regard to limitations on that or questions of freedom. Um, and I think that your book goes to discussing these aspects of citizenship and freedom as promised (laughs) um, as an area that is often, as, as we've noted, not as fully interrogated.
0: Yeah. And we're in a moment um, in the 1840s um, in which um, the U S Supreme court, uh, chief justice Taney is thinking about this question also, interestingly, Um, And so the folks I write about are not alone in pressing on this question of the degree to which uh, mobility, movement, travel, um, leaving, entering, -entering, reentering are constitutional questions, because Tawney is asking this same question uh, when uh, confronted with um, the review, for example, of um, port laws um, in places like New York and Boston, the regulation of ports, um, and the in-migration of people. And what's interesting about Taney's thinking well before Dred Scott is that he is beginning to articulate a right to travel. He thinks that the constitutionally derived right to petition the government guarantees to every citizen the right to move in and between the states. The logic goes, if you're a citizen of Ohio, you have to be able to pass through Pennsylvania or a na- another neighboring state in order to come to Washington and to literally petition the government but Tawney's um, already anticipating Dred Scott, and so carves out, if you will, a big exception for former slaves. Um, he's whatever the Constitution guarantees. Tawney says um, former slaves are an exception, are subject to um, the police laws of the individual states, and so can be constrained in their movement in the ways that white citizens cannot be. Um, so this, even these. Um, sort of major constitutional questions um, are laced through um, with the kind of aspirations that former slaves in Baltimore are articulating in their daily lives. Um, And it means, yes, um, that movement and the terms of movement um, are not simply, I would say, I mean, Lily, to me, it's not simply freedom. Right. Right right, that it is actually um, of a higher order, if you will, than freedom. It is about citizenship, um, and that's ultimately the question that um, my folks are uh, occupied by. Um, They are anti-slavery activists, they are profound critics of slavery, but they recognize that freedom is not enough, um, and that citizenship and the rights of citizens, as murky, as ill-defined as they might be, could be a way for them to actualize something more robust than freedom, um, which is um, citizenship.
1: Yeah. And, and it's also the taking of the the concept of freedom. And, and if you inscribe it into citizenship, then it becomes real as opposed to abstract, I think.
0: I think so. And um, it gives us a sense, right, of that story that we know um, through the, three constitutional amendments of the Reconstruction era, right? The abolition of slavery, birthright citizenship, and then um, the beginning of voting rights, at least for African-American men, um, that that is a story that former slaves already know very well by the time they get to the Civil War era. Um, it is an equation um, that they are um, have been deeply engaged with For a very long time, the abolition of slavery is not going to be sufficient. Um, They are going to need a rubric like citizenship, and then they're going to need to breathe meaning into that um, such that it includes civil rights and political rights.
1: Absolutely. And and, I mean, so many political theorists I've been talking to about this question of citizenship. How do we think about it? What does it mean? What does it include and what does it not include these days? But your book is also giving us the sort of backstory as to when it was less clear than it is now, which is not totally clear either, um, but less clear in different ways. And particularly for a group that was, you know, sort of put into a box because of their race and therefore the question of their citizenship. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the church which is also included in your book in terms of its role in the antebellum period and these questions around civil rights and the sort of experience, day-to-day experience of Black Americans.
0: So thanks for that. Um, I come to the church In part, and here we're speaking about um, African American Methodist and Baptist congregations um, that grow up in the early decades of the 19th century and grow up as um, parts of independent denominations, in particular in the Methodist context, um, uh, Black Methodists who have split away um, because of racism within the white-led Methodist church into their own denominations. I was trying to understand how people who were, um, first and foremost, people who were excluded from um, the formal training that we associate with um, law um, and who um, are at a distance from legal culture, I was trying to understand how they develop their legal consciousness. And it turns out um, church is a very important and um, far-reaching institution for understanding that everything from the um, incorporation of um, Black-led church communities. Um, And when we look at the incorporation of these churches, we see the ways in which men, some of whom themselves are not able to sign their own names, are studying, working with lawyers, and um, evincing a kind of... um, uh, really really sophisticated acumen about how to um, establish their institutions, um, how to um, uh, insulate them from critics and predators, um, how to organize leadership and decision-making. Um, so church is an important form in that sense. Um, church is important because um, African-American congregations in this era are also uh, writing their own laws, um, church law, And so there is a lot of legal thinking that goes into um, the establishment and the sustaining of church communities out over time. Um, These are institutions that um, when there are um, internal offenses or infractions are uh, convening tribunals and conducting courts that in many ways mirror the kind of process and procedure that we associate with um, uh, uh, civil courts um, operated by the state Um, And then most importantly, perhaps um, the the governance of these institutions and the well-being of African-American churches will require church leaders um, to come into the local courthouse, whether they are protecting their institutions and the property of their churches from uh, creditors and predators um, or disputes within the church kind of spill out into civil society and bring church members before a local magistrate or judge. Um, We see the ways in which um, church becomes a a sort of school for learning about what law is, how it works. Um, And the disputes that arise out of churches are one of the avenues by which African-Americans come affirmatively into the courthouse um, to evidence their capacity to sue and be sued, to exercise these civil rights that in the Civil War, in, in the post Civil War era, will be expressly associated um, with citizenship. Um, so law turns out to be essential to this seemingly religious realm. Um, there is no um, line that one that will be more um expressly delineated between church and state in the 1870s um, is not a line that operates with any um deep relevance in a city like Baltimore before the war. And so we see African Americans um and religious leaders in particular um very much a part of um the everyday life of a courthouse.
1: And and I wanted to follow up on that particular setting the the church as a a kind of scene for citizenship engagement um, by Black Americans that also led them to, to the next sort of scene for citizenship engagement, which is the courthouse. Can you talk a little bit about the various places where Black Americans um, sort of uh, tried on and performed citizenship beyond the church and the courthouse? Sure.
0: Um, So uh, the place, uh, the first place to point to is um, what in its time was called the Colored Convention Movement. Um, So here, uh, beginning in the uh, earliest years of the 1830s, um, when uh, former slaves, free African-Americans are excluded, uh, both from legislatures and from party politics, Um, there grows up a political convention movement led by African-Americans that we call the Colored Convention Movement. Um, It begins in part as a response to and in an effort to thwart both colonization and black laws in the individual states, laws that discriminate against African-Americans in the individual states, but will really emerge as um, a sustained, sophisticated um, and uh, deeply uh, learned space in which African-American activists will um, organize um, share ideas and concerns but from a historian's perspective really um, give a full-throated um, uh, a full-throated presentation of the kinds of ideas that animate um, the everyday workings and the everyday lives of of um, Former slaves. So we look to the convention movement, and I'll just put a plug in if I could for the Colored Convention Project at the University of Delaware, uh, run by Gabrielle Foreman, because uh, uh, there they have um, compiled and transcribed and uh, made publicly available, um, widely available, these convention minutes, and they are stunning for anybody who's interested in. Um, capturing African-American thought. By the 1820s, um, former slaves are now um, uh, editing and publishing newspapers. The first African-American headed newspaper is published in New York in 1827, Freedom's Journal. And Freedom's Journal will have agents in Baltimore um, who distribute the paper and have correspondence um, to that paper as well as um, anti-slavery newspapers out of Baltimore. And so we can um, capture um, uh, the kinds of ideas that are animating Black Baltimoreans um, through these kinds of sources. And, um, and they're necessary, I should say, just from a, a research perspective, uh, because uh, courthouse records are um, profoundly modest in their um, kind of explication or the opportunity to really hear voices um, for the most part. And so um, I importantly supplement them um, with newspapers and minutes of the conventions.
1: Um, and, and I wanted to ask you specifically, title of your book, Birthright Citizenship, we understand that coming out of the Civil War um, as the solution. Um, but can you speak a little bit to this concept itself and how the historical antecedents that you sort of go through the book um, and explain, um, and analyze how that leads us to this concept that we think we know and Mm -hmm. understand. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've been very active on Twitter, um, helping us to sort of understand it, um, and its nuances a bit more as well. Can you speak to that a bit?
0: Sure. Um, you know, On the one hand, birthright citizens or jus soli, right—the right of the um, soil—has precedent in English law. We could we could spend a few podcasts sort of telling that story, Um, but in the U.S., um, as former slaves look at the story, they um, look back importantly to the Constitution of 1787, and what they uh, discern there is something. Uh, you know, every student of the student of the Constitution knows, which is that the President must be a natural born citizen of the United States, and they light on that, um, you know, lesser considered um, phrasing in the Constitution um, for on two points. Right, the first is that well, if the President is a natural born citizen, there must be such a category, uh, right? That the constitution recognizes the category of the natural born citizen as contrasted with the naturalized citizen. Um, and so they're, that's important to them. And then secondly, what they recognize is that there is no color line in the constitution of 1787. The constitution recognizes free people, um, enslaved people and, um, native people or Indians, um, but not, that um, does not recognize a constitutional line between black and white. And so this, for many of them, is a beginning point. And because of this careful reading of the Constitution, they win a lot of, um, uh, if not hearts, minds um, before the Civil War, um, which is to say um, that, uh, that lawmakers are hard-pressed um, to then find in the Constitution um, a bar um, or a color line against the citizenship of former slaves. But they will look um, then to um, debates in Congress. Um, the admission of Missouri is, is, a, is an important starting point in 1821. Uh, Missouri will propose a uh, what is in essence a black law in its uh, founding constitution, one that bars absolutely the entry of free people of color in the state. Uh, Congress members can't agree about the degree to which that is a violation of the constitution's guaranteed of the privileges and immunities of citizenship. Uh, Some Congress members think former slaves are citizens and hence cannot be subject to a provision in a state constitution that would bar their movement or their entry. Others think they are subject to that kind of limitation. Um, So here, um, I hope you can hear the ways in which um, folks are sort of cobbling together um, uh, episodes, um, confrontations, uh, close readings. Um, in 1838, a man named William Yates, um, will publish, uh, a, a, a treatise, um, called the rights of colored men or rights of colored men. Um, and Yates will, um, compile this sort of motley, um, uh, collection of debates, um, in order to promote the view that former slaves are citizens. And he, um, Uh, is drawing on um, the kinds of um, episodes that former slaves had been uh, themselves um, very much um, compelled by as they engaged in this debate. This means that by 1857, um, when we get to Dred Scott or 1862, when we get to Edward Bates and his um, attorney general opinion on citizenship, or we get to the um, uh, 1866 Civil Rights Act, those are late, late volleys in a long-standing debate that has happened in officialdom, be it on the floor of Congress or in state constitutional conventions or um, in high courts. Um, those are pretty late volleys in a in a spirited, um, learned, um, and sustained debate um, that no lawmakers before we get to the Civil War um, era. Um, are committed enough um, to resolve,
1: and and I and that I found to be so fascinating in your book in that the way you threaded these debates through and in our, our in our sort of understanding that this is a hard and fast thing that we all understand to be so and yet perhaps not.
0: Well, and of course, um, if we move just, uh, uh, you know. Uh, 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 matter of months beyond the ratification of the 14th amendment already we can see in congress itself the evidence of the uh, next debate about citizenship and birthright and that is going to be one that turns on the status of chinese immigrants and their u.s born children Um, so part of what i would offer you know is that um There is nothing, um, frankly, about the story I tell, or there is nothing about the 14th Amendment that settles these questions. And that instead, what we learn is that citizenship is always, um, has always been, um, and really has been through our history, always the subject of um, renewed and pointed debate, oftentimes turning on the lives and the status of those we would term people of color. And be it Chinese Americans in the latter um, part of the 19th century or um, those people in now US territories, um, in uh, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Guam, um, American Samoa um, in the early part of the 20th century, um, be it those said to be unauthorized immigrants today, um, this is a um, regular, permanent. Feature of our democracy, and every generation has in its own way confronted the meaning of U.S. citizenship, um, in particular the meaning of birthright. Um, this story that I tell is the first chapter, um, but it's only the first chapter.
1: And it's a chapter that is also embedded in the history of enslaved people in the United States, of course, um, which makes it that much more complicating given the founding documents and the spirit of the revolution.
0: No doubt. Right. I mean, former slaves, we always knew right, that the anti-slavery cause, um, uh, very deliberately, um, very effectively. Um, and in a sense, in a defining way, um, turns to, um, Not only, frankly, the Constitution, but the Declaration, um, and um, seeks to compel the nation um, to not only define itself by those terms, um, but to transform itself by those terms. Well, it turns out that in addition to the anti slavery cause, this struggle around citizenship is doing some of the very same work because the result of the activism. Um, the ideas, the advocacy of former slaves, the result of their work over the decades before the Civil War is not simply the redefinition of their own citizenship. It is the clarification and the definition of citizenship for um, all Americans going forward. Um, And so um, this is not simply a story of race um, and rights, even as that is my title, um, because the upshot is, Um, is that, um, these folks who certainly out of their own, um, urgency, the urgency of their lives, of their communities, interests, um, come to redefine citizenship for all Americans.
1: And I would love to ask you now, what are you working on? You've had this smash hit success book timed amazingly with our political climate. What's, what's on your docket next?
0: Thanks for asking. Um, I'm writing a book called Vanguard, um, which is a political history of African-American women um, over two centuries from 1820 to 2020. Um, We are um, on the verge of uh, commemorating the uh, centennial of the 19th amendment to the constitution, um, that amendment that um, uh, addresses the question of women in the vote. And it was really time um, not only to uh, tell that story from the perspective of African-American women, um, but to um, emphasize the degree to which for African-American women, um, 1920 is um, an important but hardly defining episode. Um, so um, this book will take us to through African-American women's struggles related to the 19th Amendment, um, but then up to our own time through the Civil Rights Act, um, Voting Rights Act, excuse me, of 1965, for example. Um, and I hope it will help us to um, learn something new in 2020 about um, questions related to race and rights this time told from this perspective of African-American women.
1: Oh, I look forward to reading this. And I hope you'll come back on the New Books podcast to talk to me about it.
0: I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. It's my
1: pleasure. Thank you, Martha Jones, for joining me today to talk about Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America, published by Cambridge University Press. Any brick and mortar store you want to give a shout out to where somebody can buy your book?
0: Well, I'll just give a shout out to my um, local independent bookseller, Red Emma's, right here in Baltimore City and Mount Vernon. Um, But please, um, wherever your local indie uh, bookseller is, um, I hope uh, they carry it. And if they don't, I'm sure they'd be happy to order it.
1: Exactly. Thank you for joining
0: me today. Thanks so much, Lily.